everyone, welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters podcast. I'm your host, Nigel Palmer. Now, before we begin, I want to say hi to everyone new to the podcast. We've had a big jump in new subscribers and we appreciate you being here and hope you enjoy learning more about wildlife and the natural world. Today, why don't you join me for a walk through a wild meadow as we look at some of the plants that thrive in a meadow environment, some of the traditional uses in herbal medicine and the folklore surrounding them. Then we spend a night with pine martins in southern Scotland. So exciting. Pine martin populations are beginning to recover and their range is increasing after years of persecution and habitat loss. And there may be an association with this week's mindful moments, but all of that will be after we look at this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News, where we are looking at a report on wildlife crime that was issued earlier this week by iPhone. Hello and welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News, where we're talking wildlife crime that is a significant issue as it affects animals globally. This week, IFOR, one of the leading wildlife charities, released a report that details the devastating impacts of wildlife crime on wild animals. And Wildlife Matters thought we would take this opportunity to talk you through some of the aspects of wildlife crime and the impact that that has. So wildlife crime encompasses a wide range of unlawful activities associated with the illegal trade, poaching, hunting, breeding, trapping and trafficking of wild animals. The issue of wildlife crime is not limited to the killing or hunting of animals alone but also includes the illegal capture and sale of animals for the exotic pet trade. Wildlife crime also refers to breeding programs that breed animals solely for illegal activity, such as traditional medicine or unauthorized foods. The practice of wildlife crime poses a great threat to the survival of many species and has a significant ecological, economic, and social consequences. The illegal wildlife trade refers to the illegal buying, selling and trading of animals and their body parts such as skin, horn or bone. Animals and their parts are illegally bought and sold for a variety of reasons such as the exotic pet trade, traditional medicine or food in the form of bushmeat. Animals that are part of the illegal wildlife trade have often been violently removed from their natural habitat and families or killed despite their conservation status. Usually, when baby animals are taken from the wild, in particular for trade as exotic pets, their mothers are killed to allow for easier removal of the young. This devastates animal populations and traumatizes the animals that are taken. The illegal wildlife trade is not the same as wildlife trafficking, 
but is instead considered a component of wildlife trafficking. Ivory. Ivory is one of the most commonly traded of animal parts. It is primarily obtained from elephant tusks and used for medicinal purposes and ornaments such as sculptures, piano keys and chest sets. Not only elephants but also other animals such as walruses, hippos, narwhals, killer whales, sperm whales, warthogs and even the extinct woolly mammoth are targeted for their ivory. And despite the mammoth being extinct, their ivory, called ice ivory, is still available on the black market today. In 2018, the UK Government Ivory Act was passed, making it illegal to trade ivory items in the UK with a few exemptions. Those who breach the act may face a fine of up to a quarter of a million pounds or imprisonment for up to five years. It is important to note that the UK Ivory Act only covers elephant ivory. It does not include ivory from other animals such as hippos, narwhals and walruses. However, the British government is considering adding other at-risk species to the act. Poaching. Poaching is a term used to describe the illegal hunting, trapping or capture of animals that do not belong to the offender and it is a severe problem that has devastating effects on the wildlife population. This issue not only involves the illegal killing of animals but also the unauthorised trapping and capture of animals to introduce them into the illegal live animal trade. Poaching is a complex issue as it is often driven by the need of many people to earn a living. To address this problem, it is crucial to establish alternative, wildlife-friendly livelihood opportunities to provide a sustainable income for local communities whilst preserving their natural environment. Wildlife confiscation involves intercepting wildlife traffickers and freeing any animals or animal parts that they possess. This is usually done at specific points such as airports, ports or trafficking hubs or on site where animals are being captured or killed. Live seizures and confiscations refer to taking live animals from traffickers. These animals often can't be returned to their natural habitat since they may be injured or traumatized and require veterinary care and rehabilitation. Moreover, they may also be far from home and must be transported long distances back to their natural habitats depending on where the traffickers were intercepted. For effective operation, confiscation teams need the necessary tools and training Wildlife cybercrime is a complex and multifaceted issue. It encompasses a wide range of illicit activities such as the trafficking of animals and animal parts through online marketplaces, the coordination of illegal hunting or poaching expeditions using digital communication channels and the transfer of funds to finance these criminal operations. 
The widespread use of the internet and social media platforms has made it easier for criminals to access a global market of buyers and sellers, communicate quickly and efficiently with their cohorts, and manage complex logistics networks with high sophistication. This has created a massive challenge for law enforcement agencies and conservation organizations seeking to combat this illegal trade and protect vulnerable species from harm. Wildlife products. The term wildlife product refers to any product derived from animals. Of course, legal animal products such as sheep's wool are available for purchase. However, many animal products are illegal and are acquired in inhumane ways. If animals aren't killed, like elephants are, to acquire their tusks for ivory, they are often traumatized, maimed and unable to continue living in the wild, significantly reducing the quality of life. Bushmeat is an example of a wildlife product. Poachers often target monkeys and apes, killing large numbers of animals to sell their meat. This is illegal and incredibly damaging for these animal populations. Other everyday wildlife products illegally procured and sold include rhino horn, the pelts and skins of animals and pangolin scales. Wildlife trafficking refers to all crimes involving the illegal trade, smuggling, poaching, capture or collection of animals protected by law. Demand for both live animals and animal parts for use as pets, medicine, entertainment, food or any other form of illegal exploitation drives wildlife trafficking. After drugs and weapons, trafficking wildlife is the third most common form of organized crime in the world. The amount of money and resources involved makes it incredibly difficult to tackle wildlife trafficking and protect animal species. Exotic pets. The term exotic pet can be defined in several ways, but our terminology of any non-domesticated animal kept as a pet is to be exotic. Essentially, any animal that doesn't belong to a domesticated species such as a dog or cat falls under this category. Big cats like tigers, lions and jaguars are some of the most common exotic pets, often kept by private collectors. While some animals are bred in captivity, others, including spider monkeys, chimpanzees and various tortoise species, are illegally trafficked. Keeping wild animals as pets can cause harm to the animals themselves as it involves removing them from their natural habitat and depriving them of their essential needs. Moreover, these animals require specific and extensive care, often not provided by their owners. In addition to harming animals, owning exotic pets poses a significant risk to the people who own them, as these animals are not domesticated and can be unpredictable and dangerous. We need social behaviour and change Combating wildlife crime is a complicated issue that requires collaboration, education, communication and awareness raising. 
to address poaching and other consequences of the illegal wildlife trade, we must tackle the root causes, which include the demand for animal products. Wildlife crime is a global issue and is as broad as it is complicated. Wildlife Matters is clear that taking any animal from the wild to be domesticated or to be killed for its body parts is wrong. We don't need to keep wild animals as exotic pets or have their body parts as ornaments, trinkets or clothing. Wildlife Matters continues to campaign for the greater protection of wild animals and plants and for severe punishment for crimes against nature and all wild animals and plants that are not ours to take, sell and exploit in any way. And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News. Hello and thanks for joining me today as we take an early evening walk around a wildflower meadow. This was recorded in late summer of 2023. The day has been hot and sultry, but the early evening in the woodland is more relaxed and far more comfortable. The sun is still bright, but the light is dappled with the holy canopy shade. Many plants struggle to cope with the lack of light, though some have adapted perfectly to the summer woodland environment. The first plant I can see as we enter the woodland edge is one many of you will know. It's called Herb Robert and it's part of the geranium family. Herb Robert, a type of Cranesville, flowers between May and September and it's found in many habitats, including woodland, hedgerows, and it favours shady, rocky spots. Its small flowers are pink and formed of five petals. The plant also has lobed leaves and thin, hairy, reddish-coloured stems. Herb Robert has five petite, star-shaped pink petals with reddish-coloured stems. It's a long-growing biennial and the leaves are dark green and fern-shaped. These are known as palmates, meaning the leaves come from a single point. Like many native plants, it has several local or regional names, such as Red Robin, Death Comes Quickly, and Stinking Bob. That last name refers to the smell that comes when you crush a leaf. It's like burning rubber and not very pleasant. Herb Robert has traditionally been used as an antiseptic to help and to help stomach upsets and nosebleeds. The leaves can be crushed and rolled on your skin as an effective insect repellent. Some people make herbal tea from the leaves that are said to be good for digestion and for your bowel. It is a food plant for wildlife and a good nectar source for many invertebrates, including bees, hoverflies and the barred carpet moth. Herb Robert gained its name in folklore from an ancient association with Robin Goodfellow, 
a house goblin who's perhaps better known as Puck. Other stories suggest that it took its name from an 11th century monk who cured many people using the plant. It is claimed that Herb Robert brings good luck and fertility to those who wear a small daisy chain style necklace or bracelet made from the plant. Now, just over to my right, you will see a plant scrambling through the scrub. Look closer and you will notice that the plant has tendrils that hook onto other plants to help it climb. Just like those you'll see on sweet peas in your garden or peas that you may have in your veg patch. And that is because it is a member of the pea or legume family. The plant is called common vetch. It has a beautiful pink to purple flower that can be single or in pairs. Its leaves are folded ovals that sit opposite one another along the stems. Common fetch flowers from May to September and can be found throughout the woodland and grass and meadowlands. As a pea family member, common fetch makes its nitrates a nutrient essential for healthy plant growth. This makes it very useful as a soil fertilizing plant and it is often used as livestock fodder. Modern archaeologists have found evidence that ancient civilizations used to eat common vetch in the same way that we eat cultivated peas and pea shoots today. There is another climbing plant coming through this thicket and scrub and it's one of my favourites for its looks but also it has a beautiful smell. One sniff and you instantly know what it is. They're also known as woodbine, perhaps better known as honeysuckle but you can see the thin vine-like stems coming up through the other plants and then the beautiful trumpet-like flower. This one has yellow-orange flowers tinged with a striking pink or even perhaps a red flush. The leaves are dark green and oval and they have no stalks, so they are very close to the vine-like stem. They're in pairs and arranged opposite each other. Honeysuckle is so valuable to wildlife with its sweet, heady fragrance filling the air on warm summer evenings just like tonight. It supports several species, and many of which are now rare or endangered. Butterflies such as the white admiral, which is in decline, rely specifically on honeysuckle, and it's also prized by bumblebees. Pollinating moths are attracted to the sweet scent of the honeysuckle at night when it's most vital and birds including thrushes, warblers and bullfinches eat the berries when they ripen in the late summer and early autumn. Dormice also rely on honeysuckle for both shelter and food. They use honeysuckle bark to build nests for their young in summer but also eat the sweet nectar rich flowers as a source of energy. Honeysuckle has many uses in traditional medicine, including for urinary disorders, headaches, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and some people use it to promote sweating as a laxative to counteract poisoning and for birth control. Not suggesting you actually try any of these. These are just old methods that the plant was said to be used for. 
Honeysuckle is sometimes applied to the skin for inflammation and itching and to kill germs. The berries in autumn are poisonous. In Scotland, honeysuckle was made into walking sticks, popular with Scottish music hall performers. The honeysuckle would entwine around a thin branch, causing the branches to become twisted. In folklore, it was believed that if honeysuckle grew around a home's entrance, that it would bring good luck and stop any evil spirits from entering your house. It was also considered a potent symbol of fidelity, and our Victorian ancestors often banned young women from bringing honeysuckle into the house because they believed that the strong smell would make them have sensual dreams. <laughs> if we take the path to the right and head towards the stream that feeds the old pond, we will see a change in the type of plants. That frothy coloured flower over there that is densely running along the stream bank is called meadowsweet. Strangely, it is also known as bittersweet. The flowers are sometimes a creamy white and form large clusters known as cymes. Each flower head is up to 10 mil in diameter and its long stamen gives the plants an almost fuzzy appearance. Sweet by name, sweet by nature. Meadow sweet might not be to everyone's taste, but you're unlikely to mistake the sickly sweet and frothy flower in damp woodland and bubbling out of wet ditches. Meadow sweet flowers from June through to September. Its leaves are compound, dark green on top and greyish below. They are deeply veined and doubly serrated or toothed along both edges. The leaves are arranged on alternate sides of the stem. Now there are a lot of similar white flowered plants to be found in the woodland in the summer that are distinct such as the related dropwort that has straight fruits whereas meadowsweet has twisted spiral-like fruits. Meadowsweet has been used in traditional medicine as a painkiller as the plant contains compounds similar to aspirin. It was steeped in water to make a pain-relieving tea particularly for headaches, but also used commonly for general aches and pains. Meadowsweet is edible and can be used for flavouring drinks in a similar way to elderflower. It was also valued for its lasting fragrance. The dried flowers would be scattered on floors in the home to make it smell nice. Back in Anglo-Saxon times, meadowsweet was used to flavour mead. Meadowsweet is valuable to wildlife, particularly moths such as the emperor moth, the grey pug, the Hebrew character, lion speck pug, mottled beauty and the satellite moth. Over here are a few strands of another one of my favourite wildflowers, the red campion. It's a medium too tall perennial plant with a downy stem. The flowers are striking and a beautiful pink red with five petals from a purple brown calyx or protective sheath that flower from May right through to September. Its leaves are hairy and grow in opposite pairs. Red campion is dioecious, meaning the male and female flowers develop on separate plants. 
Red Campion is also one of the indicators of an ancient woodland. Like many native plants, it has several local or regional names, including adder flower, robin hood and cuckoo flower. As you may have guessed from one of its local names, Red Campion was used in traditional medicine to treat venomous snake bites. Red campions are essential for pollinating insects, including bees, butterflies and hoverflies that will be seen regularly on the pink flowers. With such a stunning flower, red campion is featured in several poems, including Summer Woods by Mary Howitt. Red campion's genus name, Silene, is derived from the Greek word salon, which means saliva, which refers to the gummy substance the plant secretes on its stems. Folklore tells us that red campion flowers will guard the bees' honey stores and protect the fairies from being discovered by humans. Now, let's take a look over here at what, from a distance, looks like some sheep's wool hanging off the scrubby hedgerow. It's not, of course. It's a plant called Old Man's Beard. Now, Old Man's Beard, also known as Traveller's Joy, is another plant that scrambles through the scrub and shrub layers and can often reach heights of 10 metres or more. It may surprise you that it, that it is in the Clematis family, similar to the well-known garden climbing flowers. If you have a garden clematis, you will understand the speed and vigour that plants in this family can grow and how thick and woody their stems can become. Clematis are the only ranunculus or buttercup family members developing woody stems. The flower structure is unusual. All clematis plants, including your garden plants, don't have petals. The petal-like arrangements are in fact sepals. Most clematis have four sepals, but Old Man's Beard has lots, maybe hundreds, which are soft and white. They have a slightly sweet almond scent. Old Man's Beard only flowers during August and September and then puts its energy into seeds known as atshens. An action is a one-seeded fruit that retains part of the flower. The name Old Man's Beard derives from the long, silky hairs from the grey tufted balls, a common sight in woodlands and hedgerows from early autumn. They are an essential part of the plant's seed dispersal. Old Man's Beard is a regular sight in the south of England, but less so the further north you may travel. Folklore suggests that Old Man's Beard is the devil's work because of its ability to outcompete other plants by swamping them, leading to one of its many different names, which is Devil's Cut. Old Man's Beard does have several practical uses. Near the coast, it was used to, as a wound cord to make the bottoms of crab pots. Locally, it was employed to bind sheaves of corn and is said to stop rats from gnawing through the sheaves. I'm told it was used as a cigarette substitute as well. Now, let's take a closer look at the plant that we have all walked past many times today and so far we've yet to take any notice of it. 
but that is our mistake because the bramble or blackberry is a great plant and let me tell you why bramble is a widespread native species found in many different habitats from woodlands to hedgerows heaths to dunes and our own gardens that tells us that this is an adaptable early colonizing species that can tolerate many growing conditions it is a very successful plant but not found in native pine woodlands the bramble forms an underground perennial rootstock that throws up new shoots in the spring. In the first year, growth is vigorous and vegetative, and anyone who has a garden or has taken on a new allotment will know that if the tip of the shoot meets the soil, it may develop roots and form a new plant. In the second year, the lateral shoots grow, which bear the flowers. The leaves on these lateral shoots are somewhat smaller. The flowers form in late spring or early summer and are white or pale pink and the blackberry develops from these flowers. I didn't say fruit because the blackberry is not a berry. Each tiny juicy part of the blackberry is in fact individual and is known as a drupelet. Each drupelet has a fleshy outer part surrounding a stone or seed. Some brambles produce fruit and seed without fertilization, although the transfer of pollen to the stigmas of the flowers may be required to stimulate fruit and seed formation. This form of reproduction is neither sexual nor asexual. It is known as a pomixis. Brambles and dandelions both make use of this method. Blackberries have formed part of the human diet in Western Europe for thousands of years. A woman buried in bogs in Denmark, dating to around 500 BC, was discovered to have blackberries in her stomach. Blackberries are a wild superfood and are well worth collecting and eating. Blackberries are rich in calcium, great for your teeth and bones, and can regulate blood clots and muscle contractions. They are also packed with vitamin C and vitamin K, fibre, and vitamins and minerals in short they are good for you tasty and healthy too it's no surprise then that they are great for wildlife as well dormice eat the flowers and fruit and use the prickly stems for refuge and to keep predators away the leaves are an excellent food source for deer in spring the flowers feed many pollinators and other insects whilst in autumn the berries provide a vital harvest for many birds, but also mammals such as badgers, foxes, hedgehogs, and most rodents. Over here is another scrambling, climbing plant I would like to tell you a little more about. This one is known as a dog rose. This is still the most beautiful of the roses with its pale pink flowers. Dog rose flowers are large and white or pale pink flowers with white centers. And if you get cl closer, just give a sniff. Yeah, you will get a hint of that fabulous rose scent. Of course, like most roses, the stem has firmly hooked or curved prickles that help the plant grip as it scrambles through other plants or up trees. 
With support, a dog rose will climb up to around 10 metres. The leaves are on alternate stem sides and divided into two to three pairs of toothed leaflets. In autumn, a dog rose will produce striking red hips that form in small clusters. Each hip contains many thousands of hairy seeds. The wild rose has a long history of medicinal use. The rose hips are rich in vitamin C and are commonly used to make herbal teas, syrups and supplements. Rose hip extracts boost the immune system, improve digestion and provide anti-inflammatory benefits. They're also used in skincare products for their antioxidant properties and the ability to promote skin health. Rose hips also have culinary use they are made into jams, jellies, sauces and beverages. Rosehip tea is known for its tart and fruity flavour. It is a rich source of antioxidants and can be enjoyed for its taste and the potential health benefits. The petals of a wild rose can be used to create natural dyes, including shades of pink, red and purple. The dyes are used to colour fabric, yarn and other raw materials. The thorny branches of the wild rose can be utilised in traditional crafts such as basket weaving. The wild rose provides valuable habitat and food for wildlife. Its hips being a food source for birds such as blackbirds, red wings and wax wings. The dense thickets of the shrub offer shelter and nesting sites for birds and small mammals. Once again, the local or regional names are a clue to the folklore of how the plant got its name. It was said that rose hips were a cure if a rabid dog had bitten you, whilst another tale suggests that it comes from the word dag that refers to the sharp spines on the stem. Dag as in dagger. Now, here's a welcoming sight for anyone who enjoys a beer after a nice walk in the woods. It's not the pub yet. No, over here, what you can see are wild hops. Hops are native to the UK and can be found everywhere except the very northern parts of Scotland. Hops have green-yellow flowers from July right through to September. The male flowers grow in loose branching group, whereas the female flowers are catkins, shaped like cones. The male and female flowers develop on different plants. The leaves are rough to touch and have toothed margins and the female flowers develop into cone-shaped fruit, green before turning brown once they have ripened. Hops have a distinctive scent. It's a rather heady mix of yeast, apples and a hint of garlic. Hop flowers have a rich nectar that is important to many insects but their main benefit to wildlife is that the dense vines create small microclimates that are safe and a valuable refuge for insects and nesting or roosting birds. Of course, hops are well known for being a bittering agent and a natural preservative for beer, but they are also have some excellent medicinal benefits. Hops are said to be an aid for those who cannot sleep. It is a relaxing, soothing herb and it is particularly effective when combined with valerian. 
Hot tea can be taken before bed, but you can also make herb sachets or a hop pillow using hop flowers. Hops can also help relieve stress or anxiety and have been known to help menstruating and menopausal women by reducing hot flushes and soothing to calm the body. However, because of its phytoestrogens, hops should not be taken by pregnant women or young children. Hops have a natural antiviral, antibacterial, antimicrobial and antibiotic properties that help boost our immune systems and are said to aid digestion if taken before a meal. Hops also have a place in folklore, of course, along with the animals who are supposed to receive the gift of speech late on Christmas Eve. The hop is believed to turn green on the same night. Hops are also known as the wolf of the woods. We are now heading towards our end point for today, but I have spotted a relatively common plant that is fascinating with an intriguing name. Just here, this plant is known as Lords and Ladies. This fascinating plant has three distinct phases in its annual cycle. In the early spring, you can find it growing alongside wild garlic or ransoms, and they can look very similar. It's an early flowering plant in woodlands and will have tiny yellow base flowers in April and May before sending up a shoot with a single pale green sheath surrounding a purple or yellow spadix, a spike of tiny flowers on a fleshy stem. This spadix eventually produces an upright stalk of bright red berries that is conspicuous amongst the leaf litter. Lords and Ladies is widespread throughout most of the UK, apart from the very northern areas of Scotland. It isn't poisonous, as many believe, probably due to the red berries. Still, it does contain oxalate crystals that are very sharp and can penetrate and irritate the skin for a long time. And if consumed, it can cause the throat to shrink and possibly close. Traditionally associated with Beltane, our modern May Day celebrations, the Druids would have sex in the fields to ensure the land's fertility, and unsurprisingly, Lords and Ladies was a popular plant. Maybe that's why the Victorians denounced it as devilish, lewd and symbolic of rampant sin. Lords and Ladies may have medicinal uses, but you should avoid it. It was used to induce sweating and vomiting and to treat internal parasites. There are also stories of it being used to treat painful throat conditions and rheumatism. The roots of Lords and Ladies was used to make a drink called Salute. It was popular among workers before tea or coffee arrived in Britain or was even affordable to them. The root was used as a thickener when arrowroot powder wasn't available. But beware, the root needs very careful and thorough processing and once again, you are better looking and not touching or in any way consuming lords and ladies. And that brings us to the end of our walk on this wonderful summer evening through the meadows on the edge of the woodland. I hope you've enjoyed it.
now it's time on the Wildlife Matters podcast to slow down and relax as you join me deep in the woodland at night as we go searching for this elusive native mammal. hope you enjoyed that how many of you knew that you were listening to the sound of a wild pine martin a native mammal not known for its vocalizations that tend to be around mating time or when something fascinating such as food is discovered as was the case with this recording and now it's time for our main feature a night with the pine martins and who said that this was all just randomly put together join me as we are in the galloway forest in southern scotland for a night of discovery and adventure dark winter evening with a chilly breeze gusting through the trees as I wait at the agreed rendezvous point here on the edge of the Galloway Forest. The forest is renowned for its dark skies, allowing for a clear view of the night sky that is alive with stars tonight. But I am not here for stargazing. I hope to see a native and scarce wild animal that once the second most common carnivore in the UK is now critically endangered and has suffered from a loss of habitat, persecution from the fur industry and predator control directly associated with game shooting in the late 1800s. These factors devastated pine martin populations in England, Wales and most of Scotland. This led to pine martin surviving in only very small numbers in just a few scattered pockets, mainly in the northwest of Scotland, where they were highly vulnerable to disappearing altogether. After UK-wide protection for pine martins, afforded by the Wildlife and Countryside Act back in 1981, their population has slowly grown. Tonight, I am with people who volunteer their time to support the population of pine martins that now call the Galloway Forest their home. Pine martins are dark reddish brown with a distinctive creamy yellow bib and a flash of creamy yellow on the tips of their ears. 
They are slender, pointed faces and long, bushy tails, which gives them an excellent balance whilst they scamper around in the trees. They're similar in size to a small domestic cat, with an adult typically measuring between 50 and 75 centimetres or 20 to 28 inches long. The males are slightly larger than the females and can weigh up to two kilograms, whilst females weigh usually around one kilogram. I marked into part of the mustelid family, which includes stoats, weasels, otters, and of course, badgers. All mustelids have sharp teeth and claws, which make them effective hunters. Pine martins are unique among mustelids because they are the only ones that climb trees. They have semi-retractable claws that will allow them to climb with ease and agility. Pine martins prefer to live alone and are very territorial. Depending on food availability, the adult male requires a territory of somewhere between 5 and 20 square kilometres. They are most active at dusk and prefer to live in well-wooded areas with plenty of shrub cover. Their dens are in tree hollows and females usually use old squirrel drays or corvids nests. They also use purpose-built den boxes. Although rare, they have been found outside of woodlands in habitats such as rocky hillsides and scrublands. Pine martins have a varied seasonal diet and are omnivores. They eat small mammals such as voles, rabbits and squirrels. This was one of my first trips when I recorded audio for the Wildlife Matters podcast. We went to a hide in the woods to observe pine martins. After setting up our equipment and creating feeding stations, we settled in for the night. My companions had over 30 years of experience watching pine martins in the area and they were busy setting up low-level background lights while I was setting up my camera and tripod. After about an hour, we heard a rustling noise in the trees. My companions held a finger to their lips, signalling me to keep quiet. We waited, silently until a large male pine martin appeared, moving towards one of the feeding stations. Like their mustelid cousins, they are opportunistic feeders and are very happy using feeding stations loaded with a range of winter trees. Pine martins are known to have a soft spot for manufactured food such as peanut butter and jam sandwiches, which we have a couple of large sandwich boxes full of, although I was hopeful that they were to feed us. Pine martins will eat a varied and mixed diet in the wild, ranging from insects, amphibians, to ground nesting birds, their eggs and seasonal produce such as fruits and berries. Slowly, the pine martin left the cover of the scrub and made his way to the feeder. He quickly took a square of jam sandwich and darted back to the scrub and he was gone. I hadn't taken a picture or had time to switch the video on. 
My deflated feelings were soon snapped back as he returned almost as quickly as he had left and began to take some apple pieces and nuts from the feeder. This time, things went to plan. <laughs> the relief. I was told pine martins would cache their food, especially during the colder winter months. This stunning adult male was taking what he could, whilst he could, and then quickly storing it to ensure he would have food for the coming days. Several visits later, he ate some apple pieces before squatting to lick the peanut butter smeared across a log where the feeder bowl had been placed. This was an exciting first sighting of a wild pine martin, and watching it feed was an incredible experience. Things went quiet again after he left. Yes, the fox had smelt the food on offer, but had stayed a shadowy figure in the scrub, deciding not to venture out to enjoy the meal. It may have already found a good meal, though, earlier that night. The silvery moon allowed me to see my companions' faces without artificial light. The wind was gusting with a chill blast as the moon made its nightly journey across the sky. It was 2.40 a.m when the rustling in the scrub began again. And then we heard a distinctly cat-like towering noise, very unusual as pine martins, being solitary, rarely used any form of sound for communication. As I sat, statuesque and in complete silence, the sight I had hoped for happened. A female pine martin came towards one of the feeders and right behind her were two, no, no wait, three, wait, look, there were five kits. The kits were young adults now. They would have been born in March or April with their eyes closed and just a thin coat of lightly coloured fur. The Pine Martins kits rely entirely on their mother for milk and warmth during their first six weeks of life. The mother will only leave the nest for very short periods and then just to find food, whilst the male pine martin plays no role in raising the kits. As the kits grow, they explore the outside world in July or August, and they can hunt and find food independently by October. Typically, the kits stay with their mother throughout the first winter, although they may sleep in separate dens. Male kits may leave to establish their own territories, but in some cases, the mother keeps them all together. The mother pine martin mates in July or August and undergoes a biological process known as delayed implantation, ensuring that the kits are born at the best time of year for survival. This is the only time pine martins communicate audibly with the distinct cat-like calling being the sound they make during mating. The data collected by volunteers observing pine martins' behaviour and ecology helps to inform future conservation plans. 
Pine martins typically live for 8 to 10 years in the wild and their population has been slowly recovering after years of persecution by humans. The pine martin's primary predators in the wild are foxes and raptors, but their decline was due to human persecution and habitat loss. They were trapped, poisoned and shot by gamekeepers during the development of the shooting estates and their thick, soft, reddish-brown fur was hunted before that. Finally, habitat loss due to the planting of single-species coniferous plantations has severely affected pine martin populations. They evolved in natural pine forests and broad-leaved and ancient woodlands, and the protection provided by the Wildlife and Countryside Act of 1981 has been essential in preventing further habitat loss. The Act requires forestry workers to check for pine martin and other species before conducting any work and bans forestry works between April and June when the kits are born and dependent upon their mothers. Pine martins in Scotland have seen their population recover to relatively high densities in the highlands. Here in the Galloway Forest, pine martins have returned over the past 25 to 30 years, thanks to a decrease in gamekeeping and an increase in forested areas. Gamekeepers have persecuted pine martins for many years, which had resulted in their low numbers in the Galloway area. The growth in forest areas has allowed pine martins to thrive and support reintroduction in other regions of southern Scotland. Pine martins can be found in Wales and some reintroductions are underway in England, but they are not present throughout the vast majority of England. Wildlife Matters plans to present a future podcast from the Forest of Dean Pine Martin project. We will provide more information soon. Pine martins are enigmatic native animals that are a vital part of our ecology and ecosystems of the UK. Due to human persecution, they have been missing for way too long. As someone from the south of England, I had never seen the wild pine martin. The chance to see them in their home environment was an incredible experience and one I hope to repeat many times in the future. I will never forget the memory of seeing an adult male caching his food and a female with her independent young adult kits interacting and eating food. Wildlife Matters would like to thank the volunteers from the local Pine Martin group who shared their extensive knowledge and experience of Pine Martins in their local area and for their great company and camaraderie. They asked not to be credited by name, but they know who they are and I hope they will be listening as this experience would not have been possible without them. Thank you. And that's the end of this week's Wildlife Matters main feature.
Now that was a fantastic night that will live on in my memory forever. For those who have never been lucky enough to see a Pine Martin, they are naturally elusive. They are typical mustelids in that they are fast moving, always alert, always curious, and their ears and noses are constantly twitching and moving. They also adore peanuts. Now, Wildlife Matters will be back in two weeks' time when we'll be talking to Maya from the Knots ARG about why she loves amphibians, toads, and we're talking Toad Patrol. All that coming up with Maya from the Nottingham Amphibian and Reptile Group. And of course, it's going to be Valentine's Day and we will be taking a look about love in the animal world and revealing some of the quirky ways that animals get it on. So if you have enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to like and follow us on social media too. You will find Wildlife Matters organization on all of the major social media platforms. But for now, thank you for your time and for choosing to listen to us today. My name's Nigel Palmer and this is Wildlife Matters signing off.